Hi, I'm Will Ross. And I'm Devin Scott. We're friends and independent filmmakers. I'm an editor and a sound designer. Devin is a cinematographer. And what else are you? I'm a colorist. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Robert Altman's use of visual point of view in films like Nashville, The Player, MASH, McCabe, Mrs. Miller, Belong, Goodbye, Secret Honor. He made a lot of movies. Welcome to Film Formally. Prairie Home Companion, Shortcuts, Bees Like Us, So, Devin, this one's your baby, this episode. You love Altman. You're the Altman, you could say. I do. It's probably one of my three or four favorite American filmmakers. Mm-hmm. The thing about Altman is that more than just about any filmmaker that I love to the degree I love his work, he makes decisions and works in ways that I cannot emulate right and works in ways that that i initially wrote off mash was my first almond film and it took me a good five or six years to i think get a handle on what the heck that film was doing and it took watching other almond films to really understand the brilliance, I think, of his working methods, despite how counterintuitive they are. Um, He tends to work in a way that is, I think, willfully at odds with how we usually see directors with creative ambition or creative stamps work. Right. Um, He really almost, his work flies in the face of stuff like picky compositions. Um, you know, painterly lighting and uh, his focus on process rather than the actual film itself. Those all, I think, are rarities, especially in the era of Hollywood he existed in, right? When we think 70s Hollywood, uh, which was when the, the majority of his kind of influential work took place, we don't usually think, you know, freewheeling films that have no clear <laughs> plot or and then no director to inflict their will upon every last thing. We think of filmmakers like Steven Spielberg or Coppola and, you know, the usual suspects of, of those guys who were fastidious in their utter control over every single aspect of their films. And Altman just is not that. Um, so, mm-hmm. and that has interesting implications. I really wanted to talk about um, his use of, well, I want to talk about a lot of his stuff. I think I want to do future episodes on his overlapping dialogue, his use of filters. Um, actually, we could do Vilmos Zygmunt's use of filters. You could probably get a solid, at least mini series of a podcast out of talking about Robert Altman. <laughs> I've overthought him more than just about any director outside of like Terrence Malick. Yeah, right before um, we started recording this, he said this is either going to be really good or really up its own ass. So Both. I I really wanted to focus on his use of zoom lenses. It is probably aside from overlapping dialogue and ensembles, the trademark of his filmmaking. And I would argue that it is at least as important as either of those. The majority of the shots in his films, in one way or the other, incorporate a zoom. And I want to analyze especially the process-based reasons for why he did that and the effect that his incessant zooms have on his films. I'm interested in his zooms and uh, even more so, I'm interested in how that 
relates to point of view in his films. And the, the idea of the cameras or the directors or whatever's point of view and how we interact with the film through that point of view is so complicated. And there are so many different conflicting ideas and theories and readings uh, often that can be applied to the same film. And Altman's films, though, in particular, I think his point, his use of point of view and the way he does that largely through zoom lenses is really hard to pin down. How about we define what a zoom is? Um, which means that we have to define what a focal length is. Oh, no. Oh, God. The focal length of a lens is one of two properties that determines the field of view of an image. Field of view is essentially if you hold your arms out in a cone in front of you or make a little square with your hands, how much can you see in front of you? right? How big is that window? The focal length of your lens is one of the two things that determines that. The other is the size of your image capture format, but let's just focus on the lens. A zoom is a change in the focal length. I'm going to refer to John Belton's A Bionic Eye here, uh, where he says, a zoom produces the illusion of movement optically through various changes in the focal length of the lens, rather than through the actual movement of the camera. This creates an image which progressively alters the original space being photographed and which subverts the illusion of depth. In effect, the zoom produces an ellipsis of space by both traversing and not traversing it. Essentially what that means is that a zoom changes our relationship to the space within an image, but our space, the camera eyes, subjective experience of that space is not moved, right? A dolly, you're moving through a space physically. A zoom, you are either fixating on a point in that space and removing areas around that or doing the opposite. Right. Yes. Do you have a less wonky explanation? <laughs> well, I mean, a, a slightly less wonky in that it's less tied specifically to the technical apparatus might be that it's like you're looking at one part of the image and you're simply enlarging it gradually. So all the other parts of the image that were previously in, available in the frame uh, are being pushed beyond its boundaries. They're They're sort of being cropped out. And conversely, if you're zooming out, then you're reducing the size of the image you're looking at while all the stuff that's around it can shrink so that it fits into the frame that you're looking at. Altman uses zooms basically all the time. And his films have more shots with an active zoom than they don't. Um, and this was, at the time, revolutionary. Um, zooms were often used as a punctuation and affectation in very specific ways. Um, I can liken it to almost the spirit of handheld, right? Where if you read Painting with Light, book written in the 50s, um, it specifies handheld as a specific special effect, right? You use it once or twice a film if you like need to get a point of view of a tiger or something. So many directors in the 60s overused zooms too. They had fast zooms where it would quickly change focal length from one thing to another. Slow kind of meandering zooms. I, th I think we can pre pretty safely credit Altman with at least heavily popularizing that in the US. These gradual kind of kind of pushes in and out of scenes, especially combined with lateral dollies. This general aesthetic lies in Altman's process rather than an attempt at an end product, which is an interesting thing to say. Most auteur with a capital A directors, we tend to associate their formal techniques more with an attempt at creating effect in the final film. Whereas Altman's formal technique, especially this, is not necessarily in its execution intended to create an effect on the viewer. It's intended to change his own relationship on set with the actors. Something Altman said about 
he said it about the player. I don't know if he said it about what, any of his other films. I kind of poked around but didn't find something. But he described the player as an essay. It felt like it really clicked with me because I feel like often Altman's point of view and his use of zooms is essayistic in that he's set up this world and he's set up these actors to do their thing. There are elements of spontaneity that he really enjoys. There are there's messiness. There's a sense of a lot of things happening both within and outside of the frame and the, the immediately available soundscape. It's often described as a very porous frame. Sure. As opposed yeah. to a closed frame. Yeah. yeah. And I think he a view he uses his camera to pen this essayistic view where he's commenting on it. He's taking examples from the world and he's using them to make his point rather than most filmmakers are just strictly focused on synergizing where they're pointing their camera and how their camera's moving to the narrative and the world and to expressing the characters' feelings and ideas and the and the ideas of the world, where he is very deliberately taking his camera as a separate entity from the world and he's very analytical. It's very observational and process, though not necessarily thematically, which is an interesting comparison to draw. Like, Rear Window is observational thematically. It's about watching. Altman's films are rarely about that. I think Long Goodbye, you could argue, kind of is. He's just an observational filmmaker, right? You you rarely feel like you are a participant in his stories. A great counterexample would be someone like Fonzo Coran, where his camera is always in the thick of the action. Um, Altman's camera is watching from afar, uh, from a very fixed point of view, and you are observing these events. You are not participating in them. You aren't asked to take on the point of view of a specific character. This flattens out his action and I think kind of renders his characters slightly inconsequential against this kind of universe around them and the worlds they inhabit, which I think does play a little into his general theme of an indifferent universe um my guess is that's less of a conscious connection he made and more just a mind that thinks that way would make sense for him to shoot that way yeah process wise i want to highlight the effect this has on his performances right we're talking about how we feel in watching his movies but when he was shooting them um he would often have his camera extremely far removed from the actors, you know, like um, often when we shoot, you know, we like to keep our, ca- keep our camera like what, six to 10 feet away. Um, usually in most dialogue scenes, that's how, a lot, of about our, right. that's how yeah. a lot of directors like to do it. His camera was often 50, a hundred feet away. Um, and mo- moreover, by using a zoom, his actors would not know whether it was a wide shot or a close up. <laughs> so he would essentially create these circumstances that would almost do what documentary filmmakers say they wanted to and erase the presence of the camera for the actors. I wonder if that's a double-edged sword where so many actors, especially film actors, are trained to really think about the angle at which they're being perceived at a given moment as to how they give their performances. And I can see how not knowing whether it's a close-up or a wide shot would be freeing. But on the other hand, I wonder if for some actors, it's a source of anxiety where... No matter what, even if you're trying to behave entirely naturalistically with your body language, there's always going to be a consideration of how you're being seen by the viewer. So I wonder if that could ever cause backlash. I mean, I I love uh, most of the performances in his films, but... I I, I do think it does contribute to the somewhat physically awkward way his actors tend to present. And that feels like 
something that he would be entirely okay with. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking the reason I raised the potential criticism is uh, I was watching is it about Popeye. It's not about Popeye. It is about one of his 80s films. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a movie I, I enjoyed, but I think has its fair share of flaws. One one thing that really struck me about it is the film is based on a stage play that Altman had just finished directing on Broadway. And it's quite faithful, I think, for the most part. And I believe most of the cast was held over from the stage play. And it was funny because watching the movie, for example, Sandy Dennis, who was this massively acclaimed stage performer who had her fair share of really terrific film performances as well. I'm watching her and listening to her and I can tell she's giving a really interesting, well-inhabited performance, but a lot of it's just not working hmm. for the medium like sometimes she'll be performing and it will feel weird. Like she's like way overperforming her ticks for the camera or, and I, I just wonder if in the transition, the immediate transition from stage to screen that combined with Altman's uh, really weird use of uh, an uncommitted camera perspective might've compromised her performance in ways that it didn't, it wouldn't necessarily otherwise where, um, Altman's directing style usually relies on an improvisational kind of endless stream of first takes where no two takes yeah. are ever the same. Um, he gets actors to deliver totally different lines, often take by take. And that feels like a way to both, you know, let actors imprint their own narrative on the film while also maintaining that spontaneity of unrehearsed dialogue throughout every single one of his films. It's there's flubbed lines everywhere. <laughs> you know, right. actors just do not deliver them correctly. <laughs> and um, I wonder if uh, that would just not work with a troupe of performers who had done that scene a thousand times before. Right. Yeah. Especially coming from theater where the writer is paid so much more reverence than a screenwriter. I think an interesting example of that kind of awkwardness, however, counterintuitively working is in Tim Robbins' performance in The Player. Oh my where God, it yeah. feels like he never knows where to put his hands. <laughs> it feels like he's acting for a close-up and he does not know that his lower body is being filmed. And yeah. the result is one of the most stiff performances I've seen like an A-list movie star ever give. And it's perfect. Tim Robbins in The Player, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, is this my favorite performance in any... Ooh, that's a tough Altman one. movie. It might be. And I think, yeah, part of it is this unexpectedly great match for Altman's not lack of direction, but yeah, that uncommitted camera perspective. And he feels like so capable of adapting whatever anxieties or indecision he may have had about the performance to his own character and what his character would do with that anxiety surrounding <laughs> the performance, if that makes sense. I think there's a definite tension in how Altman's philosophy of, hey, I'm going to show you five stories happening at once in this frame, <laughs> overlapping dialogue, wide shot with a million characters, how that philosophically plays out in his films and his kind of coaxing of the viewer's eye through zooms. Um, I, I just watched The Long Goodbye again, and there's that shot where um, plot is happening in the foreground. Elliot Gould is walking through a town and there's these two dogs having sex in the background <laughs> and the camera slowly zooms into these dogs as, you know, actual 
story action is happening in the foreground and the scene just lingers on the two of them for quite a decent time. <laughs> and, and, and I, and, um, I was both aware of the multiple things going on at once, the almost like choose your own story element of the film, but also of, Hey, I am being asked to focus on this for now. I think it's worth talking about the fact that he was so far away from dogmatic in general, but with, with his aesthetic of zooms uh, as well. I mean, a lot of his films, sure. Like Nashville, I don't think ever breaks from that general approach of zooming in on characters from afar. I know exactly one example of this, but are there any moments in Altman that you can think of that are explicitly shots that are character POV? It's a shot and we know we're basically looking through the character's eyes. Um, the end of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, Mrs. Miller right. looking at the opium pipe. Come back to the five and dime. Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean has an even bigger break where about halfway through that movie, everybody except one character who's in the back room leaves the set. It all takes place in one set and everyone leaves without telling that character. And then the character walks into the set and she looks around and there's no one there. And in the film, Altman cuts to not just an explicit POV shot of her looking around, but it's a handheld POV shot of her looking around. Huh? Which is so uncharacteristic for Altman. And I wanted, I wanted to pose to you if you could think of any POV, because well, I It's cannot... also worth noting, actually, because I was thinking, do you think Altman came up with that or the cinematographer? For a director who, whose auteuristic footprint largely revolves around giving his collaborators a ton of breathing room, um, could that be a result of that? Because um, his films are just stuffed with... It esoteric stuff like that right um mm -hmm. it, it's worth noting that the final scene of mccabe and mrs miller altman was not even on set for that right, right? Uh, almost zygmunt shot that himself and um, obviously altman made the decision to put it in the film but perhaps that pov shot even in that only came 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 about because of zygmunt or maybe not who knows Maybe. I don't know. Pierre Mignot shot Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And I don't know what else he shot. I've never heard of that man. He, <laughs> he Maybe he didn't shoot anything else with Altman. He went through, I think, a decent number of collaborators in the 80s. But The vast majority of Altman's collaborators, SDPs, were journeymen, not like names. <laughs> Jordan Kernweth made it through half of Rooster McLeod before being fired. <laughs> Right. So I, I think there's no coincidence that Altman tends to work with um, cinematographers who do not have a massive footprint or ego probably yeah but i mean uh, even then it's hard to imagine that like the one time i can think of and i haven't seen all of altman's films but i would not be surprised at all if this was the only handheld pov shot in any altman movie the reason i bring it up is because it, it 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 screwed up a lot of my <laughs> trying to figure out what i thought of altman's pov for this episode because so many times when i thought i had settled on an idea of what Altman does or how to characterize his work, uh, that POV shot wound up getting in the way. And the only way I can explain it away is, is he's not dogmatic, number one. And number two, like you said, like he gives his collaborators a lot of leeway. That's one of the joys of Altman. He's so self-contradictory. Even thematically, his films seem to be completely at odds with each other. Hey, you're um, right. His movies don't make any sense. <laughs> like MASH feels like a completely different universe than McCabe and Mrs. Miller in terms of sure. the, uh, the idea that film paints at the person who made it. <laughs> Which feel completely uh, different from Brewster McCloud. 
both of them. Exactly. Yeah. And then which all feel completely different than images. And this is all films made within three years of each other. Well, he said in the early 90s that he was only, that he always thought of his work as a continuum of work and that it was just only in the early 90s was it starting to come together and become clear how all of his stuff tied together. That touches on something that I think is really interesting in that um, depending on who you talk to, um, I have had a heck of a hard time nailing down like who Altman was as a personality. <laughs> yeah. It, it, like, it, the stories about him are so contradictory. Like depending on who you talk to, he was like the most empathetic person in the world to other people. He was like, like a, like an enervant gambler hustler. <laughs> right. Right. And like others, he was this like egotistical loudmouth who bullied studio executives. <laughs> yeah. The so only I, consensus point seems to be that he was a charismatic dude. Yeah, well, it seems to be to me, it seems to be someone who had his vision for how he wanted to make movies and would defend that belligerently. And I think that process based attitude really speaks to me because um, the idea that you can go into a film and set up the circumstances so that the machine that's around you operates in a certain way. And then you follow that where that leads is such a radical way to think of movies for especially for a Hollywood director. It's forced me over the past decade of watching his stuff to really re-examine how I see my own place as a person who makes movies. I think this is part of why radicalism is something that you kind of feel in the bones of an Altman movie because he's so willing to shed all of the accoutrements and niceties of how Hollywood movies get put together and presented to the audience. If you just read the script to MASH, then obviously MASH has things to say. But if you watch MASH, you can feel in the bones of that movie <laughs> how angry it is and how disgusted it is with the status quo. And well, I, think, I think MASH, I think, is, is this wonderful fusion of formal and textual uh, provocation, right? Like, I mean, the very first dialogue scene in that movie is a smash zoom into a gruesomely muddy looking shot of two military people um, talking over each other, spouting nonsense. This does bring to mind um, something I wanted to bring up about how his zooms play into his use of image texture. I read something a few days ago that I think really kind of helped me key into this. A dolly shot emphasizes the Euclidean space, right? The geometry of a space, because by shifting your perspective through that space, you get a sense of the three-dimensional geometric relationships within that space. However, right. a zoom lens doesn't do that. Um, I think a great example of this is in the opening scene of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. There's this long zoom shot um, about five or six minutes into the film where McCabe, Warren Beatty, is um, making its way through uh, Rene Abergenois' Uh, saloon. I think a more traditional director to establish a space would probably have the camera dolly through the space while McCabe is walking through it to establish the relationships, right? But instead, right. we get this incredibly long lens zoom that pulls back and it doesn't so much reveal the space as force us to feel the texture of the air and texture of the image because it feels as if we're just almost cropping out of an image um, without actually moving through the space. And um, Combined with the insane image texture 
experiments going on with Vilma Zygmunt, like pre-flashing the film, which lowers the contrast, pushing the film stock to make it extremely grainy, using a ton of atmosphere and softening filters to basically put as many layers between us and the space as possible. It's all about distancing ourselves from the actual three-dimensional world and making us more aware of the medium. Right. I guess you could say that Altman, that most directors, as you said, they're they're sculpting out Euclidean space or the the relationship between different objects or or geometry or uh, the depth and the the overall shape and form of a space that they're presenting. Whereas Altman thinks of himself as someone lean who maybe he creates that image or sets up the conditions for that image and then he's the guy in the art gallery leaning into certain parts of the image and picking out the texture. L- let me use my own experience as a, as a counter example, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when I lay out a shot, I really care about the distance between the camera and the actor and the actor in the background, because um, the more I can triangulate those two things to emphasize the three dimensionality of that space, to me, that helps an audience enter the world of the film better because it creates this illusion of depth when what we're really doing is arranging pixels on a two-dimensional screen, right? Right. Um, Altman doesn't give a crap about that. To him, it doesn't really matter if the camera is six feet away from someone, which it sometimes is, or 100 feet away from someone. It's more about the texture of the image is given precedence there. And I think that does actually help explain the dreamlike quality of a lot of his films. Can I, can I do one more comparison here? Yeah, please. I think a good comparison is with Jack Cardiff. Jack Cardiff, he shot most of Powell and Pressburger stuff, Red Shoes, um, black narcissist, etc. He never ever in any interview I can find spoke of the three-dimensional space. He always spoke of it as this is a painting. We're doing a painting. And when you're painting, you aren't bound by those rules. And Altman also compared himself to paint- painters a lot. Hmm. So are you getting at the idea that depth is a quality more than others in photography, cinematography, whatever, that gives us a sense of entering a real space than other stuff like texture, like, does that mean that, that that spatialization is more indicative of the here and now and a heavy emphasis on texture is more dreamlike? I'm just trying to unpack your thinking there because I'm interested. Why do we emphasize special relationships, right? A lot of it is rooted in classical Hollywood realism, the idea that the viewer ought to know where they're looking and when right? Mm-hmm. The viewer ought to have some grounding in the relationships between who's who on screen, right? Um, and this involves, right, adherence to a lot of rules. Depth, the 180 degree rule, the axis of action, right? Um, and if you watch an Altman film, he crosses the 180 degree line like every other second. Right. At no point in an Altman film am I really sure how far the camera is away from somebody, right? At no point am, am I really sure of the spatial relationships within spaces unless there's some really specific reason he wants me to be. Um, which is a clear break from most other filmmakers. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that texturalism is inherently dreamlike, but the way Altman deploys it tends to, I think, try and evoke yeah, something different than emulating kind of our experience of prosaic reality. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. I want to challenge that and a few other things we've been saying too by bringing up I think one of the great exceptions in his filmography, which is Gosford Park. Gosford Park, a movie that certainly has uh, texture and softening and zooms to spare, but is also extremely unique among his films that I'm aware of in that the camera 
moves frequently and moreover it moves almost all the time which i think explodes a lot of our assumptions and ideas of how all this stuff applies to him i think one thing that separates his use of movement from a lot of directors is that usually directors have a their movements have a motivation and a reason like mm-hmm. you move, you dolly in, uh, you know, Spielberg wants you to dolly in cause you want to listen closer. Right. Um, or you're doing it to follow a character or you're doing it to lay out the contours of a space. Altman doesn't really think of movement in those terms. He usually thinks of it more as a tool so that he can be more flexible with his camera with intakes. I agree with you generally, but I still think Gosford Park serves as an exception to a lot of that. I agree with that. Because the camera (laughs) in Gosford Park is not just moving along with the zooms, and it's not even just moving in a purely functional way. The camera is creating parallax all over the place, and parallax is when something that's closer to you moves at a different rate or moves in different proportion to the things that are farther away from you. It's if you ever like are driving down a highway and the trees close to you are moving really fast and the mountains are moving really slow. That's an example of parallax and Gosford park. It's not just parallax, but it's other things like the camera making fairly ostentatious movements in dialogue scenes or elsewhere, like where Altman might have otherwise been, satisfied with simply looking over at a set of characters talking in the background and then panning to the foreground to show a character opening a door or something in Gosford Park he is he'll often be moving his camera either in reaction or in anticipation of that change in focus to the character at the door it feels more the camera in general in Gosford Park feels more choreographed to the action, still very analytical, still feels spontaneous. And the camera movement is so constant that it does have a sort of dreaminess and a a languorous observational feel. But it does feel like it, we have to reconsider a lot of what we're thinking about Altman in light of that. Oh yeah. There's always an exception with Altman though. And I guess that's partly what I'm getting at, but I think Gosford park to me is an especially striking film length exception. Right. I think the player too has a decent amount of more uh, classically minded, motivated movement. The player really subverts a lot of his usual kind of, um, or at least his trademarks. (laughs) Um, Like it has a specific, narrative thrust um and that's rare (laughs) in his films his films are usually staunchly anti-narrative in their construction and the player is pretty much a anti-hero's journey it makes sense perhaps that the visual construction of that film would follow he does not seem like the kind of guy to do this but every time i see the player i think like was altman consciously trying to make a movie that would make triplets budget back and be a critical success and enable him to work with large budgets budgets again. so he can make shortcuts because i think his general attitude to not getting large budgets in the 80s was well i'd like to get some of these movies made but i don't really give a shit <laughs> i don't know whether you'll have to think about whether you bleep that or not i'm not but gonna bleep I think, i'm not bleeping shit 
while we're down a player rabbit hole, I have a theory actually about and the before player. I, before before you jump down that rabbit hole, I just want to say the other reason I say that is because I think the player in shortcuts, even more so than any two of his films, but next to each other, concurrent films, they they're so stylistically different from each other in so many ways, and that and that's accepting the fact. And you got to watch is, Brewster McCloud. <laughs> right, that could yeah, not I be more different than Mash. <laughs> oh my word! That's um, true. Um, I have a, so I have a theory about the player. Mm-hmm. So, theory about the player. Sure. We should just have like this is like a separate segment in our episode of like here's Altman cross talk. Um, we'll create a little jingle. Here's a theory. There we go. Uh, theory about the player. So you know at the end of the player, Griffin Mills gets a phone call from the writer who's been blackmailing him. The writer pitches him the idea that is the movie we're watching and says it's the player. The opening shot of the player is a clapper slate with the player directed by Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Are we watching <laughs> a, a film that exists inside the universe of itself where we're actually seeing a film produced by Griffin Mills yes. uh, to his specifications and therefore we're implicated yes. in that and therefore Altman might be making visual decisions that are more hackish than usual. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good I think yeah. I, I, I had never connected the maybe that's that's why this film is hackish, but and for <laughs> so, the record, sorry. I do not think any of his decisions in the player are hackish, but I, no, I get no, exactly what you mean, where it's like Griffin Mills would want a more conventional movie than what Robert Altman would normally make. You know what and I mean? So it is maybe probably that's Robert Altman's most conventionally satisfying movie. It's also a movie that skewers you for finding it satisfying at all. I don't find that film. Oh, I actually find the player one of his least if we're just talking about the ending, one of his least satisfying. Movies. I'm more talking about from a narrative structure point right. of view. Yeah, it's a from thriller. Like, it, it functions yeah. really as a as a genuinely captivating thriller. Like I just watched the line again, long goodbye again. That thing does not work as a thriller. <laughs> does not begin to work as a as a potboiler, right? It is a, an absolute failure of an adaptation in a potboiler. Not Hats that that off to Bracket, who was adapting source material from the same author of The Big Sleep, which she also wrote. I still can't believe she wrote The Big Sleep, 1946, and Long Goodbye, 1973. That is phenomenal. I wonder, like, I do wonder whether the script she wrote for that film resembled... <laughs> resembled the film whatsoever because that'd be interesting well she was a crazy this is such a sidebar but she was a crazily stylistically diverse screenwriter oh yeah in general and i would i would honestly bet just she was the queen of the space opera yeah just knowing knowing her filmography decently well like she wouldn't have gone into writing the long goodbye not knowing what kind of director Robert Altman was so. Oh yeah, this brings to mind Joan Tewksbury, who wrote Nashville, who said that um, not I don't know if it was the first day of shooting or whatever, but early in the shoot, Altman got everyone out for a cookout where he got all the actors to bring their scripts and ritually tear them in half. Yes, I heard about this. Um, she she has a quote <laughs> where apparently she was present for this and said to him, "You're out of your fucking mind." <laughs> But apparently, like, uh, in the, at least in the interview I listened to her um, that was done 30 years after the fact, um, mm-hmm. she apparently turned around on it quite fast and thought mm-hmm. it, and and loves the movie. So that's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's super positive. But... Um, one filmmaker that a recent rewatch in Nashville brought to mind was Jacques Toddy, um, and especially his uh, 67 film Playtime. 
where mm. both he and Altman really prize this kind of ideal of giving the audience a multitude of different parallel narratives to follow at any given time. Right. In Nashville, there are scenes where three different tables worth of characters are talking at once and you can just listen to any of them or enjoy the din. Right. You can trace these characters narratives throughout the film. And this really brought to mind playtime um, and especially how it contrasts with that, where in playtime, Jacques Tati gives us these tableaus, these very wide, quite lengthy, usually static shots, wherein multiple stories are visually playing out without dialogue. And the obvious you know, contrast here is that Altman's films are full, pack the brim with dialogue. Patty's films have virtually none, but I think they both share this interesting de-emphasis of dialogue as a storytelling mechanic. I guess the main difference is just that uh, Jacques Tati trusts his audience because he doesn't zoom in and do the thinking for them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's why Playtime is the greatest film of all time and Altman yeah. is hack. <laughs> Altman noted hack. <laughs> Uh, it's funny we've barely mentioned like shortcuts it's great uh, <laughs> shortcuts is tough to it's tough to mention it's it's just like, such an what do you say about store, shortcuts like there's actually not that much if we're just talking about almonds pov and almonds camera like what do you really say about shortcuts that you couldn't really say about nashville you can say oh it separates out from the stories a little bit more and delineates them you can say ah his camera is physically closer than it was back in Nashville, like what else can you really say? I would actually, uh, yeah, the biggest difference to me is that he does a heck of a lot more physical movement in shortcuts. What was the last useful thing we said? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether we're circling the truth or circling the drain here, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Are there any contemporary directors do you think that have meaningfully actually been visually influenced by Altman's style or built on it? Oh, uh, I'm sh- oh, I'm sure there have been um, PTA, obviously PTA, especially his earliest films, not just in terms of their narrative structure, but I think they do have a decent amount of Altman in their DNA, especially how he covers fairly still static scenes. Also, the leeway he gives his actors, I think, um, in the in his in his no actually in, you know Phantom Thread is a ton of that um, the kind of collaborative nature um, where actors can really dictate the flow of the scenes and stuff. I have a good answer to this. That's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, really good I, example. I think process wise, it doesn't bear much resemblance to the way Altman constructs his film sets. But if we're going to be results based. I think that film does incredible things with with telephoto lenses, with image texture, with use of zoom as a point of view confuser. <laughs> right. It does things that Altman would never dream of and also does not do things he does. If there's any film I think that carries on, especially the torch from Altman's early 70s work um, in terms of just crazy experimentation with image texture, it's that one. Even someone like Alfonso Cuaron is... Altman influenced in his interest in having multiple concurrent things going on in the foreground and background. Oh, yeah, you can totally see that in stuff like Itima Tambien, where um, uh, he and Lebeski create these tableaus out of a roving camera, right? Where oftentimes the camera will just get distracted by something behind the actors, right? Right. Um, like there's uh, there's all the times where like in Children of Men, the camera literally wanders away. 
Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, again, that's a good example of someone taking cues without actually just wholesale copying a style, right? Because the wide angle first person POV um, of those films could not be more removed from Altman's actual tool set. Um, even if their philosophy takes certain things from him, which it absolutely does. So he's inimitable you, though. Inimitable? He's inimitable. You can't, <laughs> no one, no one could ever before and will ever again make a movie like Robert Altman's movies, but Robert Altman. Want to make McCabe and Mrs. Miller too? <laughs> I think more even than most canonical directors where you could absolutely, I, I, people can absolutely make a movie that is very much like an Ingmar Bergman movie. And that is a really good movie. I don't know if someone can do a Rob, something that feels like a Robert Altman movie. It'd be difficult because it's such a, it relies on a time and a place and an alchemy between a bunch of creatives. But he did, he had such a diverse set of collaborators though. He did. And I also and think it's all worth of his noting. movies feel like Robert Altman movies. They do. But I also think that more than a lot of canonical directors, he had these massive swings in, I think, the success of his films, um, where he had, a, he had a lot of quite bad movies. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of the risk he took by putting so much trust in his collaborators. And again, I think that risk on, if you look at his whole career, absolutely paid off the ups and downs that come with that, I think are very telling of a kind of a, like, if you compare that to say, like, I don't know, who's a, who's a director who has like a very specific process that he follows. Oh, like, um, if you compare that to, uh, I try to think of like a director who'd like, very consistent career over a long period of time. I'm thinking of like a more Spielberg type where it's just like most of their films are at least good and workable because how do I just use Spielberg? Don't use them. Don't use no? Spielberg. Okay. Who's a more interesting director who isn't just like a new Hollywood guy who has a consistent process. <laughs> yeah. Like, and who makes films that are consistently of a certain like standard of quality. David Lynch. I know. <laughs> Like I made Dune. Although I guess there's well, always yeah, a, but I mean, yeah, I mean Spielberg had bad movies. <laughs> he did. He did. He did. Do I always. never should have gotten you to watch Dune because it's prejudiced you against Gosh, his filmography. It's a disaster. It's so um, it's interesting though. Well, then I I'll just say that you know that kind of um, that unevenness that characterizes his career stands in contrast to a lot of other uh, kind of canonical directors, a lot of whom have a certain process-based blueprint that they repeat over and over versus Altman, whose process would drastically change depending on who was around him at any given time. There's very few directors. Yeah. Who are canonized or who a lot of people really love who you could really say, even their biggest fans will probably say like, Oh yeah, you can skip about half his stuff very safely. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, no need to watch a lot of this stuff. Although I, I, you know what? I don't regret watching Popeye. That was a no. I think I would not. Movie, but I think Popeye is really interesting. Yeah, I but I I probably wouldn't be able to say the same thing about like what like Doctor T and the women. I always say that Popeye is a great example of everything that seems like it wouldn't work about a Robert Altman movie. Going like everything that seems like it wouldn't work on paper about a Robert Altman movie actually goes wrong in Popeye. Yeah, it's like you watch like California Split and you're like, I can't believe this isn't going wrong. This is amazing. Yeah. And then you watch yeah. Popeye and you're like, oh, 
<laughs> right. It can't. This is it going here. wrong? Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, give it a rate, give it a review, and subscribe to it. It helps other people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you have an idea for a topic, you can get in touch with us by email at filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We'll see you next time, probably Tuesday. Tuesday.